Well, between 5 and 10 AD, and the reason I give this time between 5 and 10 years after Christ, his birth, there was a world-altering event, and it occurred in a city called Tarsus. Tarsus was an important trade center. It had become the capital of one of the Roman provinces way out in the area called Turkey. It was a province of Sicilia, Cilicia. And it was, and it's also known in history as the scene of the first meeting between Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. So sparks flew in that city. Anyway, but that's not the world-altering event. It has nothing to do with that. A baby was born to parents who were both Pharisees and Roman citizens. And think about it, Jewish Pharisees who are Roman citizens is a rare breed. So what was going on in this city called Tarsus? There's no doubt that these parents were successful. They worked in leather. And yet they were deeply devoted to God and to Israel. And even though they lived far from their homeland, Israel, they were people, as it says, as Paul himself would say later, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to law, Pharisees. And they were people who were zealous, who would persecute any kind of idolater, anybody who would set up an idol against God. Even to the point that they would use violence if necessary. In fact, throughout the last 400 years, violence was used a number of different times in order to keep Israel pure. And the word Pharisee is the one pure ones, which happened in the time when they were away in Babylon and they became a group that were just committed to purify Israel. Well, here it is, about 5 to 10 A.D., and this parent, these parents come with a baby, similar to the dedication. It's, it's, it's the ritual circumcision act. Eight days after a child was born, Jesus was circumcised eight days after. And so any good Jew was held up. And so eight days after they're born, the circumcision was a time of naming. And so they were coming to name their child. And there was one name that mattered most. In that culture in that day, you would, especially if you weren't living in Israel and you're living in, in areas outside of that, you would have potentially two names. One would be kind of a common name in the area, but then another one, your Jewish name. And his Jewish name was one that mattered. But this little baby was also given an a Gentile name. In fact, um, he was given a Roman name. He was given the name Saul. So they held up this little baby... And his Roman name, Paul, but his Hebrew name is given, which is the one that mattered, Saul. Which means, inquired of the Lord. And so they were so proud as they held up this little baby, Saul. And they named this child, I believe, because Saul was Israel's first king. Scripture actually says in 1 Samuel 9, chapter um, 9, verses 1 and 2, there was a, Benjamin, a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. And so here's this family around AD 5 to to 10, and they're holding up this child, and they're naming this child, and the name they give it as a Roman name is Paul, but the name that really mattered, the name that was most important to them was the one Saul, because this Saul in their hearts, they were hoping, would be a young man who would lead Israel and its nation once again to purity. And as their parents held their hope and dream and named this child, they had no idea 
what would be the future and destiny of this child. So what I want us to look at in the moments we have is why and how did this baby named Saul come to be known throughout the world and throughout all the ages as Paul? We're looking at what's in a name, and so Saul to Paul, what's it about? And the way to do this, I thought, would be first just look at a quick chronology of Paul. And so you'll see, just so you get some kind of um, idea of this, he is born, Jesus is born about 4 BC, and you say, why not, why 4? Well, that's the way the calendar was worked, and we won't get into that. That's a whole nother lesson. Anyway, AD 5 through 10, they believe, is the birth of Saul of Tarsus. The crucifixion takes place around the year 30 AD. And 3233, Saul begins to persecute the church. They believe around 33, they're not sure, Saul has a revelation of Jesus on a road to Damascus. So I'm giving you kind of this this timeline. And then around 33 to 46 AD, Saul is in Damascus, Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, and Tarsus. But know this, these are not missionary trips. Okay? This is some 10 to 13 years about of time. And then in 46 AD, which is an important time, Saul is brought back from Tarsus to a city called Antioch by a guy named Barnabas. And he's there at that church to teach. And then 47 to about 48, Saul and Barnabas are set apart as missionaries. And here in this place is where you see in Scripture the recording that he moves from the name Saul to the name Paul. And then 48 through 64 are the missionary journeys. He's back to Jerusalem. He's arrested, put on trial, goes to Rome. And then scholars are kind of, they're not sure exactly when Paul died in Rome, but about 64 AD, there's a fire in Rome and a persecution of both Jews and Christians, and many believe that about 64 to 66 is when he is put to death. And if you just want to go a little bit further, about 66 to 70 is the time of what they call the Roman Jewish wars ending in 70 AD when the temple is completely destroyed. And they believe that Paul was probably put to death before that. Otherwise, there would be some recordings in the New Testament of the temple being destroyed. Is that just, that, that's kind of, I'm just giving you a quick time frame. Because what's really interesting as we look at this name Saul to Paul, you have to understand that there probably haven't, there's been more books written on this guy than anybody. In fact, um, Chuck Swindoll has a very readable 22 chapter book called Paul, a Man of Grit and Grace. I recently have read New Te- uh, N.T. Wright's 400 page tome called Paul, a Biography. Very interesting. And then I remember in seminary plowing through a guy, F.F. Bruce, who wrote 522 page treatise, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. So we're going to take the next maybe 20 minutes or so. And we're going to whittle this down to four things. I hope that makes sense for you. So let me do my best to kind of select a few highlights. Let's go back and you see the chronology. You see here the birth of Saul around 5 or 10 AD, somewhere in that time period. He grows up. I believe early in his um, years, they saw he was a prodigy at the synagogue at Tarsus. If, um, if I had the, do we have the map? Can you show the map quickly? At the synagogue in Tarsus, I believe he was the top of his class. 
In fact, in his letters, if you look up here, you'll see um, this is the ancient kind of world at that time. And where it says Galatia in white right next to it, if you look over to your right is Tarsus. That's where he's at right now. That's where he grew up. But at a very early age, he's top of his class. And, I, and, and you're told in Galatians that he was sent to Jerusalem to study. So he went off to boarding school, if you want to put it that way. And so Galatians says, for you've heard, he says, of my previous way of life in, Judea, in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And was extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Let me just tell you, I was a bright guy, a bright student. I was on the rise. I was... I was making a name for myself. And so due to his brilliance and his zeal, Saul, the wonder child, goes to Jerusalem, studies under the greatest rabbi, his name called Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee. So now you get to this age where he's, you know, the Christ has been crucified. And after Christ is crucified in this group called the Way, these Christians are growing. That's what they were called. They weren't called Christians till later, and that was kind of a, a pejorative negative term, like mess, Messiah ones, Messianic ones. They would kind of say it in a in a negative way. They're called by outsiders, as, but most of them call them the Way, the Way of Jesus. And so here it is. Whether Saul was in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, no one really knows. Scholars are all over the place. But we do know that from his own testimony that he was trained in Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 22, because Paul would give his testimony a number of different places. So one time, as he's standing before a bunch of Jews, he's just been pulled out of the temple, and, and he's standing there, and he's giving his testimony. He says this. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of, Cecil- of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the consequent themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Not only was he top in his class, but now he becomes so zealous, he's going to do whatever he can as a purifying one, a Pharisee, to keep this group of people who are following this guy Jesus from holding up Jesus as an idol. How dare anyone say a man can be God? And so at some point, he tells us everything changed. Everything changed. He has this incredible, radical conversion. And Paul continues to share this in these verses of chapter 22, verses 6 through 16. About the noon, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now, what I find is interesting, if you go to the New King James Version, or the King James Version, there's a little line that, that is found in some manuscripts at this point, and it says, and he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goat. Does anybody know what a goat is? It's kind of an interesting little frame. He says, in a sense, he's saying, isn't this painful to keep kicking against the goats? Well, in that day, kicking against goat was a very common expression. You would find it in, in literature, both in Greek literature and in Latin literature. It was something that farmers would use. In an agricultural society, they would know what kicking against a goat meant. 
A goad was typically a piece of wood that was um, something maybe about so long with a blunt end on one side, but a very sharp pointed end on the other. And so what you would do as a stubborn ox at times is you would goad it into the pen. You would goad it to move because, you know, oxes can be stubborn, right? And, and if you just can't pull them yourself. I, having a little hobby farm and have some horses, every once in a while the horses stop and they just don't want to move. Let me share with you, I cannot move them myself. So... My little goat is usually in my hand, which I hurt, because I go, whack. And the thing will look at me and go. That's why they wear spurs. That's why, you know, if you have a horse, you got to kick on it. And the goat is basically this little tool that they'd hang onto, and they would just kind of, they would put it in the flesh. And every once in a while, what would happen is an oxen would feel that, would kick back. And when it would kick back, it would push that thing farther into its legs so that it would be painful and it would hurt. In a sense, he's saying, as Jesus, you know, is looking at him and he says, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads of my Holy Spirit? Isn't this getting painful? Saul's conversion often looks like this kind of lightning out of the blue. It's as if Saul has a sudden encounter with God. But when you read these words, you, you got to begin to understand that the Holy Spirit was probably working in his heart and his life prior to that. That's why he's kicking against the goads. He's been convicted at times. It just didn't happen, you know, lightning out of the blue. And if you are golfers, know that if you're on a golf course, what happens when you start hearing rumbling in the sky? You should start paying attention, right? How many are boaters? If you're on a, on, on a lake and all of a sudden you see the dark sky out there, and then it keeps getting closer and closer, it's what? It's a sign that you better get off the lake. And so he says... Saul, aren't you tired? Every follower of Jesus and their arrest and their response of grace where they were doing what Jesus said, go, if you want to hit me on the other cheek. This isn't a law. This is Jesus saying, give people grace. Every time he would do that, I think it would be like a goat into his heart. Every time that he would take someone and he would treat them so roughly and meanly and they wouldn't, they wouldn't hit back, I think it was like a goat on his heart. When he stood at one point, we're told in chapter 7 of Acts, we're told 54 to about chapter 8, verse 1, because it ends in verse 1 where it says that, that, that Saul was standing with approval over the death of Stephen. And he even says that it just wasn't Stephen, but there were other people's death. He's standing there. You have to believe that when Stephen was falling down, had been hit with rocks, he's on the ground, he's crying out to the Lord, and he says... As he falls to the ground, Lord, and I think as he says, Lord, he looks Saul right in the eyes and says, do not hold this sin against them. This is really how conversion works. One of the things you have to stop at when you look at the life of, of, of Saul, who becomes Paul, is this movement of God, who is a good and loving father, who begins to convict him, then he begins to tug at his heart, and then he lovingly does the same. And he does the same for each and every one of us. There's things in our life, and it may be that you are today in a position where you know you're walking away from God. You know that you're doing the things that, that are um, in your own heart. You feel this tug and this conviction. It's just the way conversion works. Conviction works in the way that as, as God begins to tug at your heart, he sometimes he lovingly brings people into your path. Or he arranges circumstances or allows for circumstances to head south 
Because he loves you and he wants your attention. He allows us sometimes to feel the very pain of our choices and the consequence of those. And all this leads to repentance and can lead to a desire to change, whether it's your whole life where you've been walking one way against the Lord, where he now takes you and turns you like he did Saul, and there's a conversion where he begins to open his life and begin to follow the Lord Jesus. Conversion, this kind of sense of this kind of repentance works also in your life in the way that you might be living right now, where God is saying, I want to change something in you. It leads to a desire to change as poking and prodding and working of the Holy Spirit brings about a change of direction. It can bring about a conversion. So if you listen to the rest of what Saul says, he says, Now um, the Lord says, and Get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could, not, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Have you ever wondered why? Temporary blindness? What's that all about? Was it just to get his attention? I think it was deeper than that. Often when the Spirit is bringing an ox-like personality to repentance, he will allow you to see the very direction you're headed. Saul, the man of great wisdom, bright, longing for spiritual vision, longing to lead God's people. In a sense, Jesus is saying in this moment, as the Holy Spirit allows him to be blind, spiritually you will be blind if you continue to harden your heart in this direction. Saul was given a glimpse of the very direction he was headed. God humbled him through blindness. For the past year, God has been convicting me about aggressive driving. You can laugh, but um, I've sensed this conviction in a number of different occasions. A week ago on Friday night, I was to do a wedding rehearsal, and Grace and I were, I was driving, and Grace and I were driving down County Road 90, our road, and there's a road where 12 comes just outside of Maple Plain, where it kind of turns funny, and the other road turns here. It's just a, it's a really bad intersection. It's one you should avoid kind of thing. Well, it's 5 p.m., it's rush hour. I'm there, there's cars lined up on either side, and cars, just an endless train of cars coming here, and every once in a while, intermittently, comes cars the other direction. They're going 60, 65 miles an hour. And... I um, pull up to that corner, and I kind of turn my car like I do because I go, you know, if I, in my mind, I've worked this out in the past, I can do this, and and uh, anyway, and Grace isn't feeling real safe, and I shoot the gap, I come across, I'm thinking I'm fine for a second, and right inches from my mirror is a silver gray car going 65 miles an hour. Not my mirror, my wife's mirror. And um, I saw clearly the devastation of my habit of aggressive driving could be not just for me, but for my wife and for other people. 
I don't like telling you this story because I'd like you to like me. But my impatient and often at times reckless driving, I feel like I'm in an AA meeting. Anyway, um, I wanted to excuse by saying it's just a bad corner. It is a bad corner. I wanted to excuse it by saying I just didn't see it. I didn't see it. I wanted to excuse it by saying it's a freaky coincidence. I couldn't. I was humbled. And through that whole process, and especially the next morning, I tell you I have time where I just spend time with God, and I was just writing in my journal, and I just felt like God was saying, admit it, you're wrong. You've been careless in your driving habits. How long are you going to push against the goad of my Holy Spirit? And I began to think about it. You know, God has been merciful and gracious to me because now as I'm getting older, I don't know if anyone else is getting older, but your hearing isn't as good. Anybody else have that problem? Your vision isn't quite what it was, and your reaction time is not what it should be. And I, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you keep this up. I think the Holy Spirit was saying to Saul, you keep this up. You will be spiritually blind for the rest of your life. Physical blindness is nothing. And without the severe mercy of God, as he kind of was saying to me, which you've heard the line before, your ego has been cashing checks at your body, you know, have been writing checks your body can't cash. Without the severe mercy of God, allowing me to see that I put my wife's life in danger and others, I knew I had to convert I had to change. And God in his grace stopped me and opened my eyes to something I felt I couldn't control. Now I just want to look at you and say, is God at work in your life in some area? It's probably not driving. This might be a huge moment for you. It may be the same way where God is bringing clarity to what could happen in your marriage if you don't turn from an emotional connection you have with someone that you know isn't right. It could be to a dad or to a mom saying, you know what? This is the time. If you don't invest in these kids in these years in the way that they need to be invested in, you're going to lose something for life. This may be the tenth time that God is knocking on your heart saying you need to forgive that person. The reason it keeps coming back into your mind isn't because it's just a bad thought. It's because the Holy Spirit is saying... In order for you to move forward, you need to let go of what could become bitter and what could close you off in years to come. It may be that the Lord is saying it's time to set up that conversation to get things right with someone that you have been out of of relationship with. I, I really don't know. But I know in Saul's case, Jesus comes and says... Do you really like this goad that's in your flesh that you're kicking against? And and you know what? I want you to understand who I am. And because I love you so much, I'm going to allow you to experience this temporary blindness where in humility you'll be led by your hand and, and you'll have to experience what it's like. That's what it's going to be like for you, not just physically, but in your spirit. 
And Jesus might be calling one more time, open my, open your heart. Invite me into your life. You've never, you, you've never opened your heart. You've been kind of all your life, you've been, maybe you've gone to church or you've been kind of attending with your spouse or whatever it is. And, and God is saying, now is the time to make things right. Let's continue with this story. So you go to AD 33 through 46, a period of about 13, 14 years. So at one time in his letter to Galatians, he says he was for 14 years, but there's a number of things that take place here. So if you look at it, it says Saul in Damascus, Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, and Tarsus. You go, whoa, he was traveling quite a bit in that time. He really wasn't. For, for about 10 of those years, he was in Tarsus, 10 to 11 years. But what happened was he went to Damascus and he started preaching in Damascus and, and, and he wasn't there very long. He, after, I think he, I think, Really what happened after he had his sight restored and Ananias came to him and, and, and ministered to him for a little bit, I think he took right off to Arabia. And you might go, why did he go to Arabia? If you look at the map again, if you go to Jerusalem, you go south, that's where Arabia is. It's where Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, same, kind of give it the same name. That where, where, where the ten laws were given to Moses and God revealed himself to Moses. It's the place that Elijah went to when he was, after he had this mighty battle where the fire came down from heaven and he had all these prophets that um, were opposed to him and he ran from there. He was afraid, he was shaken, he was unnerved and he came to the same place that Moses did for a revelation from God and God reveals to Elijah just like he revealed himself to Moses and he told Elijah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to where you were. Go back to that place. Well, here's Saul. He has this incredible experience. He's in, he had this lightning bolt experience he goes down to Arabia and he says, God, is this you? And it's really interesting. Here is the, the people that go is Moses, Elijah, two really important people in scripture, and Paul. He goes down there because he knows, I think in his heart, he's going, if this is really you, you know who I'm made of and you know what I've been called to do and I need to know you're in this. And I think he goes to Arabia, has this experience with God, comes back from that. He may have had some of his visions and other things that take place there down in the same Mount Sinai. Comes back, as it says, to Damascus, begins to preach there. He is so unnerving people and he's so getting people upset that they have to take him by a basket, lower him down and get him out of the city. So he goes to Jerusalem and goes to Jerusalem. And I love this. Listen to what it says. Now, this is one of my favorite um, passages when I, when I read the Bible because he goes to Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's zealous for God now, but he's zealous for Jesus. And before he was persecuting Christians, now, I mean, now he's persecuting his Jews. Because if you read in scripture, it says in Acts chapter 9, verses 29 to 31, he talked and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, which were a Greek culture, but they tried to kill him. He was stirring up the city once again and getting people upset with those who were followers of the way. And when the believers, look at this, learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened in the Lord. They put him on a boat with a one-way ticket back home to Tarsus and said, you need to spend time with Jesus. Now is not the time for you to minister. And the Holy Spirit kind of what I call gave him a time out. He goes for 10 years. And for 10 to 11 years, Saul's in Tarsus. He's on a shelf. He's out of commission. He's holding down a job. He's working as a tanner, learning the trade of his parents. And I'm guessing he's going, 
I wasn't made for this. I was top of my class. I was, I was on the way up in, in, in Judaism and, and I was going to go on the way up in the followers of the way Christ and now I'm just making leather. I'm fixing shoes. Making tents. Can you imagine how incredibly difficult this period of time was for this mighty, brilliant, top-of-the-class Gamaliel graduate? And I think some of you know. You have been trained, and God's worked in your life, and he's been preparing, and, and you're sitting in a job, possibly. You're sitting, and you're waiting for a ministry, and you're in this place, and you're saying, but, and God is saying, it's all preparation. It's preparation for you to live into the name that I've called you. And this was Paul's time of preparation. Moses went through 40 years. David went and ran in the wilderness. Jesus spent 30 years before he began his ministry working in a carpenter shop. And then 46, that year hits, and it says that Saul was brought from Tarsus. So the years of waiting are over. I don't know if he knew it, but you can get this picture. Here's Barnabas. He's working in his church called Antioch. And Antioch was um, north in, in Syria. And it was a church that was in a, like the, that city at that time was about the third, fourth largest city in, in the kind of the Roman Empire. And it was a city where every, it was all the people were going through. And many Greeks were coming to faith in Christ, it says. And it was growing so quickly that Barnabas, this guy called Son of Encouragement, goes, boy, we need somebody in our community who can deal with this. This is just kind of a, how do we deal with this? We have Greeks coming to faith in Christ. The Jews aren't really happy. We need someone who really understands us. And what has God been doing? He has been preparing this incredibly brilliant guy, Saul, who is back there making leather stuff and studying the word like crazy so that when he is called back, he comes back to Antioch. And, and in that year, he starts working in it. And the idea is that he and he was teaching what he was doing was helping the church understand how this community that was once Jews would become a community of all people who would just be a new community under God through Jesus Christ. And it's incredible, his, the need for what he could bring to that community at that time. But you know what's really cool about it? There was one guy named Barnabas, his name's Barnabas means son of encouragement, who was praying and said, you know what? I think I know who's needed here. We talk a lot about community, you guys. The way community works is when we are with one another and vulnerable and honest and tell stories about being aggressive drivers, right? I was thinking about when I was doing this illustration back there, I was thinking, you know, really, if you saw me and didn't know me, maybe if you did, you'd call me a jerk, driver. So you know what I mean? So aggressive just makes it sound better. Anyway, God wants people in community so that we can encourage one another to be in the places he wants us to be to make a difference in other people's lives. And so I look at this period, and it's really important that he's in community, and Barnabas encourages him to move into his gifts, and he's using his gifts, and he's helping form the church that would be what we experience today. And I thought about it, what a, without Barnabas, just think about it, without Barnabas, just think of all the things that would be different. We would not have an understanding of this new community that brings together Judaism and, and, and the Gentiles 
The mind of Paul was used by God for that. There's a good chance that without Barnabas, there would never be a bunch of missionary journeys into Europe and into that Asia area. You think about it, without Barnabas, all the things that, you know what? One, about half of the New Testament wouldn't have be, wouldn't be in your Bible. Thirteen letters. And you may be that to someone. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It says in Acts 11, verse 19 through 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians, Messianic ones, first at Antioch. And then 47 to 48, this is the last thing we'll touch on. We're not going to go into all his missionary journeys. Because it's here where as a, um, a team called Saul and Barnabas... They were, uh, it was called Barnabas and Saul. I mean, they were set apart from, as missionaries. And it's here where Saul gets named Paul. Listen to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Let me read this, and then I'm going to give you three things, and we'll close. Now in the church at Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So catch that Barnabas and Saul. That's who the leader was, and he was called Saul at this time. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They traveled through the whole island of Cyprus until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet. So he's a Jewish sorcerer, false prophet. Bar Jesus means son of Jesus. He was trying to be a magical guy like Jesus. That's how he must have thought of Jesus who was an attendant to the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for, notice the names again, Barnabas and Saul, uh, and because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that was his, what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Sound a little bit like the guy Saul used to be? It's really interesting because he goes on, he says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be, it's kind of interesting, blind for a time. Something Saul experienced, not even able to see the light of the sun, and immediately a mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That is the grace of God saying, listen, guy, you need to recognize the go to the spirit. For you too may be spiritually blind the rest of your life if you harden your heart. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now what you need to notice, if you go on in Acts chapter 13, verse 42, it now changes, and Luke says, and Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 14, 1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. Every way throughout the remainder of Acts, it's, it's always Paul and Barnabas. Not only is it Luke's way of saying who's the real leader in this whole missionary journey, as you see in many of his, in his Gospels, you see it, he'll always put those people who are first, first, who are in leadership. But what he changes here is something remarkable. He calls him, and it's called Paul from time to time. But now his name changed, and you have to say, why has his name changed? And I think there's three things, and they all can kind of apply, but there's one that I really believe is true. And the first is it's just a strategic thing, if you want to look at it that way. It was just a strategic thing that he, he, that he has his name changed. 
Paul was a Roman name, and so when he was going on mission, he would use a Roman name so people could relate to him as a kind of Gentile Roman or, or a Jew who had a Roman name and, and maybe a, a little understanding of their culture. And so when Paul would say things in different parts of Scripture, he says, I will do all things to reach all people. There's a sense maybe he takes on the name or he's given the name so that when he goes into places, people will be able to write, relate to him. Because of his deep, compelled compassion that he knew that Jesus had for him, he was compelled to share with others the love that Jesus has for them. And so he would not let any obstacle get in the way. And even his name he would change. I think there's some potential truth to that. Let me share with you another. Another is this. He has a new identity. He is, in a sense, small in stature. The word Paul means small. And all his life, he was trying to be like his name, Saul, and be another great leader of, of God's people in his own strength. And he came to a recognition at a certain point that his name, Saul, was not only in comparison to Saul in the Jewish ways, but comparison to Saul in, in whole other ways. Not only was they both were tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, listen to this, they were both zealous for God, yet their zeal was wrongly directed. They both offered sacrifice, but both of them not out of a heart obedience. Listen to this. They were both at war against God's anointed. David for Saul, the king, and David's son, Jesus, for Saul, the apostle. And so he takes his name, Paul, and gladly takes a name that just is, in its name means small, because in his heart he says, now I want not that Paul, or especially the Saul guy of my past, but I want people to see Jesus is big in my life. Kind of like John the Baptist said, may he increase and I decrease. And so no longer I'm going to try and be the Saul name in my flesh, but there's a break at that point in his life. Now here's the third thing, and I think this is probably the most important, and we're going to close on this. I think it was a re- revelation of his spiritual call and his destiny. God had given him a new identity, and that new identity, his new name, in the sense, was going to be Paul, just like Peter was called the rock. He was Simon, and, and now he says, but you're going to be a rock. I think he looks at, at, at Saul, and when he moves into this, Luke is telling us that now Saul, who's been you know, being prepared and has been in his flesh is now moving fully into his spirit where Jesus can be known completely. And he's stepping into his call. He's stepping into his destiny. He's going to be all that God ever intended him to be. He is now doing what he was created to be and to do. I I tell you, when I, I remember I first saw that and I didn't see it through reading commentaries or anything. I was just in my own quiet times. I just went, wow, that's incredible. At this point, God is saying, step into who you are. Step into who you are. You've been prepared. You've come to a place where you've been working in this church of Antioch. Now I'm going to release you to be what you've been called to do and to be. And God has that for every person here. You're not going to maybe be a missionary that goes across to some other um, place across oceans. And it doesn't mean that maybe you'll be this great profound teacher. But God has a call on each of your lives. He has given you a new identity. Your name is in Christ. And because you are in Christ, he has something for you to do. So yesterday I go in, it was Friday. No, yesterday I went and I visited a lady who um, just about a week, 10 days ago, was diagnosed with brain cancer, a, a person that I have worked with in the past in, in ministry. 
and I went to visit her, and she has been given just months to live. And I come in, and she goes, Kevin! Her face is kind of drooping on one side. I knew you would come. And she started talking about all the fun times and things that we did. And she, one of her things to me was, Kevin, make sure you go out and have fun. Just recognize that every day God's hand is blessing his, he, whether you see the sun or not, his sun is shining and, and she lives that way. Here she is with, you know, just found out she has this months left to live and she's just as joyful as can be. And she says, Kevin, guess what? Jesus only went a hundred miles from his hometown and he reached the world. And I thought, that, that's interesting. He sees it. You don't have to go really far. In fact, if you start to live your life like this, that every day is a calling from God. Every day is a mission. Every day you get up, God has something for you to step into. He's given you a new identity, a new sense of who you are. She didn't say all that part, but I did. He's given you a new identity, a new sense of who you are. Every day, he says, when you wake up, you can step into this reality that you have been given that day a mission by God. And so Saul gets changed to Paul. And I think the, the, the critical element in all this was there was a day of conversion. There was some time of preparation. There was time in community that was really necessary. And then he stepped into his calling. <laughs>